0: In the movie The Natural, uh, Roy Hobbs is the main character. <clears throat> he plays a baseball player who is bent on achieving the greatest level, the major leagues, and succeeding. And uh, at one point, uh, one of his friends, a woman, asks him, What makes you tick? What drives you to be good at baseball? And after he kind of stares off, <clears throat> he says, so that one day, when I walk down the street, a kid will stop and say, there goes Roy Hobbs, the greatest that ever was. And the woman kind of looks back at him incredulous like, really, that's, that's it? But We can sort of identify with that, can't we? Because we love greatness. We oftentimes want to be the greatest. I think of boxer Muhammad Ali, his famous statement and rant, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. But if we can't be the greatest, we at least want to witness greatness. We love witnessing greatness. If you're on any social media platform for any length of time, you will doubtless see debates about the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Is it Jordan or LeBron? Is it Messi or Pele? Is it Beethoven or Mozart? It's all sorts of debates because we are obsessed with greatness. We want to witness greatness. We want to see it. Well, this passage speaks of greatness It tells us who is the greatest, who deserves the credit, the honor and glory, and it tells us without question who reigns supreme. And so buckle up, because we are going to witness greatness in this passage this morning. Greatness that is unparalleled in this world and universe. No one is like Christ. And so as we walk through this passage, we'll see that Jesus Christ is and can only be supreme, above all. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that not only would we agree with Paul that Jesus is the greatest, he is supreme, but that we would respond in the only way that we can or should, in deep, heartfelt, soul-stirring, self-forgetting worship of Christ. He's so worth it. And so the main point of this passage and the main point of this sermon is simple. Christ is supreme and therefore supremely worthy of worship. Christ is supreme, and therefore supremely worthy of worship. And just to give you an idea of where we're going, six points, we're going to look at the supreme that Christ is the supreme manifestation of God. He is the supreme creator. He is the supreme eternal sustainer. He is the supreme head of the church. He's the supreme resurrected one. And then finally, he is the supreme redeemer. So first, Christ is the supreme manifestation of God. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the exact imprint of his nature, it says in Hebrews 1. In Jesus, we see God. Christ himself said so. In John 14, 9, he says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's quite a bold statement, if Jesus is not God, but he is. I remember talking with a a friend, one of our doctors actually, during an appointment, the conversation turned to faith, and we were talking about this, and I mentioned um, John 14, how Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And my doctor, not a Christian, said that's quite an egotistical statement. And I said, you're absolutely right, if Jesus isn't God, but he is. And so it's an absolutely true statement. He is the image of the invisible God, because he is God. He is the perfect manifestation of God. And this word for image is the Greek word icon, uh, synonymous with image, uh, picture, icon. <clears throat> and it's loaded with meaning, this word image. So think first back to Genesis 1, right? When God created all things, when he created man, what did he say? Let us make man in our image. And so a Obviously, we don't image God perfectly. Sin and the fall tarnished that image, fractured that image. But in Jesus, not only do we see God perfectly, we see man as he was meant to be. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He images God perfectly because he is perfect. He is God. But one commentator also points out that this word image was used um, to, um, you know, denote an image like a photo, a portrait of kind, but it also was a document in a court of law. So back then they didn't have a photo; they couldn't take mug shots of someone involved in a court case. And so what they would do is they would draw draw up what's called an icon, and it was basically a description of the main parties in the case. And so you had you know a written description of their main distinguishing marks, their personal characteristics. So there could be no dispute or no confusion about who were the main parties in the case, or who had to pay a fee or a sentence. Well, it's as if Jesus, or Paul in this uh, passage is saying Jesus is the icon, the image of the invisible God. He, in him, we see a description of God's characteristics, his distinguishing marks, so that there can be no question of what God is like and who he is. Jesus is the portrait of God. But Jesus is also so much more than a portrait. He's so much more than a A lifeless photograph. Because look at verse 19. And these are the only sort of separate verses we'll consider together. In verse 19 it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Several of the statements in this passage just must elicit the response. Wow. How do you wrap your mind around that? In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For one thing it means that he is not a lifeless photo. He is the image of the invisible God, but it's not a lifeless image. All the fullness of God dwells in him. He's alive. He's real. When he was on earth, people could touch him. People could talk to him. People could ask questions. People could fall down and worship him. How different is that from simply a a photograph, right, or a lifeless image? I don't know if you remember the movie Castaway, starring Tom Hanks, but when There's a scene when he's in this cave, when he's on the deserted island, and he has a picture of his wife, and he has a flashlight, and he's falling asleep, but he basically is just lying there with the flashlight aimed at the photo, and he clicks it on, and looks at the photo, and then clicks it off. And after a few seconds, he clicks it back on, and looks at the photo, and clicks it off. It's all he had. It was his most cherished possession, because it reminded him of his, his loved one, his wife. And that was great. But do you think if years later someone would have said to him, man, that must have been so hard, do you think he would have said, no, not really. I mean, I had a photo, so I was, you know, I was good. Absolutely not. A photo might be worth a thousand words, but it's a thousand times better to be in person. And so having Jesus be a picture, just an image of God would be amazing. But he's so much more than that. He is alive. He is full of life. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And that's one of the reasons I think worshiping in person is so vital. I praise God for live stream and for sermon audios and extenuating circumstances and for edification throughout the week. But we were meant to worship in person, weren't we? A picture, a live stream might be worth a thousand words, might be better than nothing, but it's nothing like being in person. Being able to not only be blessed by the fellowship of believers, but be a blessing to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's so important that whenever possible, we worship here in person together as one body, as a member of one church. Jesus was and continues to be the one and only living true God. And we can know him. We can speak to Jesus. We can feel his presence through his spirit. And one day, we will be with him. That's what the last verse of Christ, our only hope in life and death, talked about. One day, we will be with the Lord. We'll one day fall at his feet. Have you ever thought about that? That one day, you will get to embrace Jesus, your Savior. You'll be able to ask him questions. When our eyes close in death here, they will open in glory to behold the wonderful and beautiful face of our Savior. I love the way one hymn Put it, talking about how we will gaze on the glory of Christ in heaven. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on the King of grace. Not on the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. The Lamb is all the glory. In Emmanuel's land, Jesus is all the glory. He's real. In him all the fullness of God dwells. As Job says, our Redeemer lives. And even when our uh, our skin is destroyed in our flesh, we will see God. And as we behold Jesus, the image of the invisible God, we also are actually committed to imitate God. So in some ways, we actually imitate Jesus imaging the invisible God. Right? We don't image him the same way Jesus does, of course. He, is, he alone is the image of the invisible God because he is God. But we also are to imitate, to live out our faith in a way that makes the invisible God known and visible to others. First John 4.12 says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. But, you know, showing the invisible God to others can be challenging, can it? we're imperfect, we're sinful, we're scared at times. In fact, at least evangelism would be way easier if God was visible, right? If someone doesn't believe in God, oh, you don't believe, oh, God, could you come here for a second? My friend, God, God, my friend, like this, you know, way easier. But we are called to be faithful, to imitate God, to show the invisible God to others. I remember quite humorously years ago, um, a Christian mentor of mine walked up to uh, my high school to see some, um, some people that went to my high school. And as he was standing in the student lot um, to greet others as the dismissal bell rang, students started flooding out to the student lot. And it was then that he realized that um, someone had pranked everyone in the school by vandalizing all the cars in the student lot in a somewhat inappropriate way. And then he suddenly realized that he was the only one standing in the parking lot. <laughs> as all of these students started coming out and giving him very odd looks my friend started to deeply contemplate the invisibility of God (laughs) compared with his extraordinary uh, visibility at that time. And he prayed, Lord, this isn't really that funny. You're invisible. I'm visible. But I, for one, am so thankful for his faithfulness in seeking to imitate Christ that he could love me and my fellow students. And so how are we doing that? How are you doing that? Even as you dwell on how Jesus is the image of the invisible God, How are you imitating the invisible God that you might love others, that you might show him to others in our obedience to Christ and our love for them? But Paul also says that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. So in English, as we read this, it seems like what's being said here is that Jesus is the first of all created beings. That is how a famous heretic in church history, Arius, father of Arianism, that's how he interpreted this first. Oh, Jesus is is just created. He's just the first of created beings. But we know that's not the case because of the very next sentence. Paul says that by him all things were created. And then further in the passages we'll get to, he says he is before all things. In him all things hold together. And so who could do that except God? Further, if Jesus was simply created by God, then he is not God. He's a created being, and therefore he doesn't deserve worship. God says he's a jealous God in Scripture. He shares his glory with no one. And yet, in Philippians 2, we read that the Father heaps praise on the Son. He's given him the name that is above every name. Jesus accepted worship only as God could. And so clearly, Jesus is God. He is eternal. He is before all things. So no, what Paul means here is not that Jesus was the first of all created beings to be born. But the phrase firstborn is simply a title of honor. Think about the phrase, firstborn in that culture, or heir. It was, it was a title of honor. And so Israel, actually, in Exodus 4.22, is called the firstborn son of God. It was, it was a title of honor. Actually, the title of firstborn was a messianic title. It was a title given to the Messiah in the Old Testament. In Psalm 89.27, God says, I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. And so Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, meaning he is honored above all creation. So contrary to Arianism, this verse does not show that Christ is a created being. This verse doesn't speak of Christ's origin, but it speaks of his honor in comparison with other created beings. He is the supreme being. He is the supreme manifestation of God because he is God. But he's also the supreme creator. That's our next point. He is the supreme creator as we look to the next verse, verse 16. We've already talked about this phrase, the firstborn of all creation, and how it doesn't mean that Christ is a created being. But just for good measure, Paul goes further and explains that Jesus is not created, but rather he is the creator of all things. The word by, as in for by him all things were created there, should probably more so be translated in uh, the Greek word n there is most commonly translated in. And so Paul is saying that God created everything in Christ, through him, as he says later, all things are through him and for him. All things are created in Christ, through him. And this is actually the biblical pattern of creation. The biblical pattern is God the Father creating through the Son. And so the Son is the agent through which the God, God the Father creates. And that's the sort of Trinitarian dynamic of creation in the Bible. So take, for example, Hebrews 1, where it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So just like Hebrews 1, John 1 has similar language, Colossians 1 describes Christ as God's acting agent through which he creates the world. So all things were created through Christ Jesus. But apart from the way Christ created the world, look at the comprehensive nature of Christ's power. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's pretty much it. <laughs> I can't think of anything else. Christ has created all things. I like the way John says it in John 1. He says all things were made through him. But to reiterate just how comprehensive that is, he says, and without him was not anything made that was made. I don't know how it could be any clearer. Without Christ, there would be nothing. He has created all things. All things are made through Christ. He created things in heaven. He created angels angelic beings, so glorious, so bright and radiant that if we were to see them, we would be overwhelmed and tempted to bow down and worship them. And that's just the glory of something He created. How much greater is His glory? He created things in heaven and on earth. He created all things whether or not they regard Him as their creator. Consider God's incredible mercy in that. He created all people, even people who don't honor him as they should, as the creator of all things. How merciful, how patient. Cornelius Van Til makes the point that uh, even the atheist who denies God does so using vocal cords and breath given to him by God. He says the person who denies Christ is like a child who has to climb up on the knee of his father so that he can reach up and smack him in the face consider the mercy the long suffering the patience of christ creating all things everyone and he created every throne and dominion and ruler And authority in heaven and on earth. And what a comfort that is, right? That when we are frustrated with earthly authorities, when we mourn the evil of earthly authorities, we can fight against it. We can do everything we can to be salt and light. But at the end of the day, we can rest in Christ, knowing that, okay, Lord, you made everything. You created and established every authority in heaven and on earth. And so we can rest in his sovereignty, in his omnipotent power in creating all things. But not only did Christ create all things, he created them for him. Do you notice that at the end of that phrase? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You know, maybe we regularly remember that all things are made by God and through Christ. But do we remember regularly that all things are to him? That they're for him? Do we realize that everything that we do is for Jesus? Literally, the reason you woke up this morning is for Jesus. The reason for your job is for Jesus. The reason that your heart is beating right now that you are drawing breath, this very second is for Jesus and His glory. The reason for your relationships is for Jesus. The reason for your recreation is for Jesus. All things are created by Him and all things are for Him. He is the goal. He is the purpose. He is the telos of it all. I was reading a video game description with my kids recently and this phrase stuck out to me. I don't know if it strikes you as well, but this is what it said. Now you can take control of the action and be the center of your own adventure in this fantasy world. I don't know about you, but I thought, like, is that supposed to be good news? I, like, especially because the game is based on a movie, and I was like, I think I'd rather play out the movie and those characters than my own, but doesn't this perfectly capture the spirit of the day or the zeitgeist of our day? You can be the center of it all. It's all about you. You are the center of the story. But friends, that just isn't good news. I'm sorry. That is not fulfilling. That is not the, the reason we were made. Isaiah 43 says that we were made for His glory, not our own. We weren't made to place ourselves at the center of the story. If you want to be a part of an adventure like no other, then join the one that has Christ at the center and where we get to use every single one of our days and hours and minutes heaping glory on Him because beholding the glory of Christ is so much better than living for our own. It's so much better. It's so much better to be a pixel in the grand display of Christ's glory than to use up our life Illuminating our own pathetic little glory that's going to fade sooner after we die, if not before then, all things are to him, and that's why I think one application of this passage is that we should begin to pray earnestly with Moses, as Moses prayed, that God would show us his glory. Lord, show me your glory. That we might be inflamed and excited at the beauty, majesty, glory, and supremacy of Christ. And overcome with zeal to make him known by all possible means. What a thrilling existence that is. What a thrilling life that would be. John the Baptist got it. He said, do you think I'm the Christ? (laughs) You don't understand. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Let him increase and me decrease. We can only say that with joy when we truly grasp how glorious Christ is. As one hymn says, May the love of Jesus fill me as the water fills the sea. Him exalting, self abasing, this is victory. That is victory to be Christ-exalting and self-abasing. John Owen wrote a book called The Glory of Christ. Uh, It's a masterpiece. He he wrote it um, basically as he was on his deathbed. And I know of no better way to increase your zeal for the glory of God. The version updated, he's a Puritan writer, the version updated by RJK Law is phenomenal. I personally think there's rejoicing in heaven when even one Christian reads a John Owen book. But Owen says this about the glory of Christ. Only a sight of Christ's glory and nothing else will truly satisfy God's people. The soul which can be satisfied without beholding the glory of Christ is not a soul for whom Christ prays. One of the greatest privileges the believer has, both in this world and for eternity, is to behold the glory of Christ. Christ. All things are made by him and for him. The supreme creator. But not only is Christ the supreme creator, he is the supreme eternal sustainer. That's our third point. He is the supreme eternal sustainer. Because in the next verse, we see that he holds all things together. In verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We saw that when Paul referred to Christ as the firstborn of all creation... It wasn't really a reference to his chronological supremacy, just his honor above created things. But here Paul does turn to Christ's supremacy chronologically. He is before all things. And if you want to break your brain, just spend some time dwelling on the concept of eternity. That we live in this epoch that exists in time, and before that there was no time, and after it is no time, and Christ is before both of them and after both of them. He has no beginning, he is before all things. As F.F. F. Bruce put it, no matter how far back our imagination may press, we can never reach a point of which we may say with Arius, there was once a time when he was not. There was never a time when Christ was not. But not only is he before all things, he sustains all things. In him, all things hold together. In Christ, all things are created And all things are sustained. He is the beginning of all things. He's the creator. He's the end of all things. He's the goal. But in the middle, he is upholding and sustaining all things every second of every minute of every hour. In 1917, Albert Einstein published a a paper that would become the discipline of quantum mechanics. And one of the things that was very troubling to Einstein in this theory, actually throughout his entire life, was the seeming randomness with which... Um, things at the atomic level behaved. Particularly when a photon emitted from an atom, there was no precise way of determining when it would happen or which direction the photon would go. And this basically seemed to Einstein to undermine the principle of causality, this idea in nature that, oh, A causes B, which causes C, and we can determine exactly how that's going to happen, which makes for a perfectly consistent world and makes for a world in which science is possible. Well, Einstein believed that that whole principle that was revealed in his experiments in his paper of quantum mechanics undermined that reality, and it troubled him his entire life. In fact, it caused him to famously say, God doesn't play dice. Well, Werner Heisenberg was a Nobel, uh, Nobel Prize winning German physicist, and he was also a devout Christian. And Heisenberg was a t- uh, contemporary of, uh, of Einstein, and he wrote to Einstein, this concerning the seeming trouble Einstein was having with the randomness of quantum mechanics. He said, we can console ourselves that the good Lord would know the position of the particles and thus he could let causality, the causality principle continue to have validity. In other words, Heisenberg is saying nothing is actually random but perfectly guided and controlled by God, who through Christ is upholding and sustaining all things, making our universe dependable. The consistency of our world does not solely depend on the laws of nature, but on something actually much greater than that, much more consistent than that, the power of Christ. And so Christ holds all things together, even at the atomic level, even at the subatomic level, And atoms and photons, he is holding and sustaining all things together. Praise Jesus and his power. Things might seem random to us in nature or in the world or in events in the world. Things might even seem contrary to God in the world around us, causing us to think, oh, there's no way that God could be real. There's, There's no way that God could be controlling these things. Many people believe that about science about the natural world, that, oh, if you you study it, it'll lead you away from God. But actually, many scientists say the opposite. They say that actually the more you look at this universe, the more that you can't escape the fact that there's a good creator, intricately weaving children in their mother's womb, and so on. And that's actually what Heisenberg believed, and that's why he wrote this. The first gulp from the glass of natural sciences might turn some into an atheist, but at the bottom of the glass... God is waiting for you. Christ holds all things together in the natural world, but he also holds all things together providentially. Think about every event in our life. Christ and his sovereignty and his providence is holding all things together in perfect balance to achieve our greatest good and his glory. How often are we meditating on that? How often do you think about, contemplate, consider, even in the last few days or in the last few weeks or months, how has Christ held all things together in your life through different events for your good? John Flavel, another Puritan writer, wrote a book called The Mystery of Providence on that entire topic. It's a phenomenal book. What a blessing that would be for us to continually meditate on how Christ is holding all things together, even events in our life, for his glory and our good. How much discontent comes from not doing so. Christ holds all things together. But he is also the supreme head of the church. That's our fourth point. Paul says in verse 18 that Christ is the head of the body of the church. Another phrase you could give him here, another title is, Christ is the supreme leader of the church. And Star Wars fans had that on their bingo card for sure. You can cross that off. But Christ is the head. He is the most important. He's the irreplaceable leader of the church. Have you ever thought about the fact that you can replace or transplant almost anything in the body except the head or the brain? The brain stores our memory. It gives signals to the rest of our body. It's, it would be impossible to transplant a brain, at least at this point, And in the same way, Christ is the irreplaceable head of the church. Many members of his body have come and gone, lived and died. But the church remains because Christ is the head. And as the head of the church, Christ gives spiritual life and health to the church. He's also the ultimate authority over it. He is our head. And so every Christian must bow in allegiance to Christ, submit to him our head. And what a privilege this is, that we get to experience such a union, such unity with Christ, being a part of his body, of which he is the head. Such oneness with Christ. That's what prompted Augustine to say that every believer is not only made a Christian, but made Christ. For he is the head, and we are the members, the whole body. He and we are one person, Christ. As individual believers, we are united to Christ, and we are united to him through the church. And notice the sort of logical, inseparable connection there. If you are in Christ individually, then you are in the church, his body, or at least you should be. Can a Christian be united with Christ in faith and yet not seek to be a part of his body, the church, of which he is the head? We get to be one with Christ, not only as individuals, but as in the church, in his body. Christ is the head of the body of the church. He leads the church. He loves the church. He lays down his life for the church, and he will look after the church until he returns. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. Not because of us, but because of Christ, who is the head of the church. But more broadly than the church, Christ is the head of a new creation. He is the supreme resurrected one. That's our next point. Christ is the beginning. That's what Paul says here. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Paul now moves from creation of the world in general to the new creation of the church and Christ's heavenly kingdom, and he is the beginning. He's the beginning of all things, certainly, but here, specifically, Paul is saying that Christ is the beginning of the church, and that's clear because of the previous statement that he's the head of the church and the following statement that he's the firstborn from among the dead, as in the first of the resurrected ones. So Christ, through his resurrection, became the firstborn from among the dead. Christ defeated death and also became the first of those who would later be raised from the dead through faith in him. See, all of us were descended from Adam. And all of us, because of his sin, bear the distinguishing mark of Adam, which is sin and death. And therefore, all of us deserve the penalty, which is separation from God and hell and death. But all Christians are grafted into a new creation with Christ as their head, the second Adam. He came, and they, they all have the, they bear the distinguishing mark of Christ, the Spirit and Sonship. And rather than receiving the penalty of sin in the first Adam, we receive the consequence that Jesus earned for us in eternal life and blessing. The first Adam entered the garden and he was, sin- he was tempted, and he sinned, leading to death for all. But the second Adam also entered the garden, and he was tempted. He peered into the cup of wrath that he had to drink for our sin, and he was so overcome with agony at bearing the sins of the world that he sweat drops of blood. How much greater was his temptation than the first Adam? And yet he obeyed. He went through with it, and he obeyed, and he died on the cross, passing on his righteousness to all of his children through the blood of his cross. On Christmas, with the birth of Christ, the sun set on the sinful creation of Adam, and on Easter morning, the sun dawned on the new creation of Christ Jesus, of which every believer is a citizen. And all of this is so that Christ might be preeminent in all things so that it is inescapable to worship Jesus. And this leads us to our last point. Christ is the supreme redeemer. We already considered verse 19, that He, uh, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So look at verse 20. God was not only pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ, but also through him to reconcile to himself all things. You know, we tend to think of our reconciliation just as um, individuals, you know, humanity, our salvation, but the universal nature of God's reconciling activity is really on display here. He will reconcile all things to himself because all of creation was affected by sin and the fall. In Romans 8, 28, it says the whole of creation groans. Before the fall, there seemed to be perfect and complete harmony in the Garden of Eden. Among all God's creatures. But now we see disease. We see natural disasters. We see violence and disharmony between God's creatures. In Genesis 3, God pronounced uh, a curse on man. But notice what he says. He says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. The ground is cursed. Creation is cursed because of sin. Just ask anyone that has tried to grow a luscious, green, healthy lawn. They will tell you the ground is cursed. (laughs) It is difficult. Creation is cursed. But one day, one glorious day, all things will be reconciled to God through Christ. In the new heavens, in the new earth, all things in creation will be perfect. And when we go for walks, past beautiful, luscious fields where flowers bloom, and when we see the lion lying down with the lamb, and when crops always yield their fruit, and when we no longer see carnage from natural disasters, and when loved ones are no longer diagnosed with cancer, and when we no longer have to say goodbye, And every one of us will say, Praise God, who has reconciled all things to himself through Christ. All reconciliation flows through Christ and his cross, including our redemption. It's clear in this passage that the Colossians were doubting Christ's supremacy in all things, including his creation. Thus, Paul reminds them, no, he's created all things. He is before all things. He sustains all things. But the Colossians also seem to be doubting Christ's supremacy in their redemption. They seem to be doubting, is our salvation really efficacious? Is it really final? Did it really work? And so by showing the supremacy of Christ, we are assured that our salvation is certain, that our redemption is lasting because of who accomplished it. The heart of Christianity is that we have all sinned against God, and we deserve death because of that. And yet God in His mercy sent His Son so that all who trust in Him can have eternal life, can be reconciled to God. Our good works, our good life, our generous giving, giving none of that can save us. Only faith in Christ. But we see in this passage how wonderfully sure our salvation is because it was accomplished by Christ. In Romans 8.34, Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? If Jesus, the Son of God, redeemed you, how could it not be final? How could it not be sure? In Homer's uh, The Iliad, uh, tells a story of a great battle between the Achaean army and the Trojan army at the city of Troy. And for most of the battle, the great warrior Achaean, warrior Achilles is sidelined. He has a sort of um, feud with the commander of the Achaean army, Agamemnon. But finally, he puts that feud aside and he decides to join the battle. And when he steps on the battlefield, there is a ripple throughout the entire battlefield. When Achilles shows up, a tremor of fear goes down the spine of every Trojan warrior. And Achilles begins marching steadily toward the gates of Troy, and nothing can stop him. No matter how tall or strong or experienced the Trojan warrior is, he leaves them dead in his path. And every single Trojan warrior has their eyes looking toward Achilles, and in their heart whispering, He's coming, and there is nothing that anyone can do to stop him. Finally, he reaches the gates of Troy, and he meets the Trojan hero, Hector. And Hector retreats from him, runs around the city several times away from him. And when he finally faces him, Achilles steps up and makes quick work, defeating and killing him. Our great Savior, Jesus Christ, marched steadily toward the cross. To accomplish our redemption and to vanquish every one of his and our enemies in his path. And there was nothing that anyone could do to stop him. And now there is nothing that anyone or anything can do to separate us from him. The Iliad is just mythology, this is Christology. That's just a story, it's just a made up story. This is reality. Can you imagine how the demons trembled when they heard God is coming? Can you imagine how Satan feared when he peered into the manger and he saw the Son of God veiled in flesh, the Godhead, the incarnate deity? Do you remember how the demons' voices cracked with horror? as Jesus, the Mighty One, The Son of God commanded them to flee. Can you imagine how Satan quivered when he decided to face the righteous one, attempting to put him to death, only to have his throat stepped on and defeated as Jesus triumphed over him, rising from the grave. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. When you feel you aren't enough. When you doubt if you're forgiven. When you wonder if you'll really see him when you die. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the sin within. Upward and look and see Christ. The supreme creator and sustainer of all things who made an end to all your sin. All of this passage is meant to lead us to worship Christ. But nothing does that quite like contemplating how Christ has redeemed us, doesn't it? The one who created all things, every plant, every tree, was hanged on a tree for you. The one who held all things together was held to the cross by nails through his hands and feet. The one through whom all things were made was pierced through for you. Do you see his glory? Is he precious to you? As John Owen says, no man will ever become like Christ by simply imitating him. He must know the transforming power of beholding his glory. We must love and treasure Christ. Then will we truly worship him. Then will we truly repent. Then will we turn away from sin and then will we not be able to stop telling others about him? As one author said, when love for Christ burns in our hearts, it cannot be contained by our lips. So may 2023 be the year in which God shows us the glory of Christ and that we might make him known and be zealous to do so. Let me pray. Lord, we pray with Moses, show us your glory. Show us the glory of Christ. Lord, we want to be overwhelmed with the glory of Christ. We want to not be able to stop worshiping you. And Lord, we want to be excited, inflamed, zealous to have our life, every second of it, used up for your glory because there could not be a greater or more thrilling existence. We thank you and praise you for passages like this that reveal to us your glory. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to stand in awe of you and your son, not only today, but every day of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.